Beautiful. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I might need that too. Thank you very much. Welcome. Whoa, that was a, a way to kick into a sermon, wasn't it? it, is, it is it well with your soul this morning? Good, good. I, 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 that song is so powerful, and they did it so well with it, the drums underneath, the bass, and the soaring lyrics. Uh, you can't hardly not be pretty well in your soul after that. Um, it would be great to be even better than well. It would be cartwheeling well with, the, with your soul. To get there, though, that you have to have kind of like a rounded spiritual life. And if you dwell all the time in the good place and the happy clappy, and you don't sometimes go to the places of sorrow, confession, and brokenness, and lamentations, um, then, then your life is, is, it can be pretty good, it can be here, but it's not quite the big, full, rich thing that we see in the life of Jesus Christ, who, who took on sorrows, who bore burdens and gave them back to the Father, and he took on the burdens and bled them out on the cross, uh, but he was a man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief. He was also a man who turned water into wine for a really great wedding. I mean, he, he had the full range of the human experience. One of the problems we have with denominationalisms is we tend to specialize in what we really like. So if you really like, you know, dark and somber, maybe you go to a, a Missouri Synod Lutheran church or something. And if you really like, you know, vineyard style where you can kind of like really have a lot of energy all the time, we owe it to ourselves to follow the way of Jesus and to make sure no matter where we camp, whether it's here this morning at Springs Community or if it's at a vineyard or if it's at a Catholic church, wherever we camp, we don't just lock into the part that fits our personality type and our preference from our childhood. We really want a rounded Christian life. So in Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time for uh, every season, a purpose under heaven, you know, a time to laugh and a time to mourn, to grieve. And we find this in this book that we're reading this morning. I love Eric, and I've known Eric since he, he moved to Colorado. We have prayed together. I can't even tell you how many hours, and we've been in teams together, committees. So when he called me and says, would you preach um, on this? I thought, wow, that's, that's going to be fun, except then he told me which chapter. Now, I, he probably told you that this, this guy is the shortest guy in the Bible, right? Nehemiah. Um, but he, he was strong and tall in his influence as a leader. He was a magnificent leader. And he saw what was happening. You've been going through this series, preaching through. He saw what happened when the hearts were broken in the midst of discovering the law and reconnecting with who God is in their lives and how to properly be in the kingdom of God at that time. And so when, when he saw that, Nehemiah saw that. He said, okay, now let's time out. Stop crying for a minute. And let's celebrate because God has become real to us. He's come to us and he wants to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. More importantly, he wants to rebuild the people of God. And so this is about renewal and it's about rebuilding, but it's about rebuilding God's people and right then, when their hearts were breaking, he knew as a great intuitive leader, gifted with the Holy Spirit, he knew that in order for them to, 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 to prosper and flourish through this shock of the law and how far they had drifted, they needed a time out, a little R&R, &R, 
And I love this insert that Natalie lifted up that's in your bulletins. Um, Nehemiah 8.10. He's saying, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. So, okay, it's a time to go ahead and celebrate now because God is alive. The living God is coming to you. He's making himself known. And let's celebrate that. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. And share. You've been blessed, and through your blessings, you bless others. This is great kingdom theology. This is the way it is in the kingdom of God when he comes and works in and through his people. We, get, we receive blessings, and then we share them with other people. But then Nehemiah 9 goes, okay, we've had our celebrations. We had really fun with the festival of tabernacles, the tenting, you know, making these little huts out of palm leaves and stuff. We've done some stuff that have reconnected us with our past as the people who went through the desert and lived in tents and all this. We've, we've observed festivals as we were commanded to do. And now the other foot, after the happy, fat, clappy foot, we, we bring the other foot down foot, hand. I've mixed metaphors. Sorry about that. We, we come to a time of confession and sorrow and deep grief. And um, this morning's sermon is titled, Here's Mud in Your Eye. And um, again, on this insert, you got a homeless person. And I, I work, for those of you who don't know, I work with a ministry uh, that deals with street people. And uh, they all have their favorite camping sites, and many of them camp along the stream, Little Dry Creek, and in Inglewood, where I live on South Denver, uh, the South Platte is flowing, and the Little Dry Creek flows in. So there's a number of bridges along the creek and the South Platte, and, um, and then there's a lot of shrubbery, brush, you know, uh, shrubs and brush and uh, trees and stuff. And they, and they camp on the dirt often, and when it rains, the water comes down the gully, down towards the river and the creek, and they wake up with mud in their eye. They literally wake up, you know, filthy, dirty. And what are they supposed to do? Walk around town looking like a homeless person just crawled out of a mud hole. Well, they, you know, they want to go to a McDonald's or someplace and splash up and try and clean up a little bit and have some respectability. It's a mess. It's hard to be homeless and to not have all the blessings that some of us are just taking for granted day by day. Um, and I, as I'm thinking about mud in the eye, um, any of you ever hear a movie or, or, or heard the saying before, here's mud in your eye? Would you raise your hand if you've ever heard the phrase, here's mud in your eye? It's like if, if you're older, I don't, I don't remember what movies or television shows, I don't know where I heard that, but I'm very familiar, here's mud in your eye. I, I looked it up to try and figure out where that comes from. And there's a lot of debate about different sources for that. It may have been that back in the, in the, in the you know, maybe the Middle Ages or something, uh, if, if you had enough money and you had an opportunity to drink and party with friends, maybe here's mud in the eye means we're going to party so hard you're going to fall over on the way home and you're going to get mud in your eyes. I, I'm not exactly sure. But as I think about this text, and if you have a Bible, if you care to follow along, I'm reading from today's English version, the Good News Bible, uh, Nehemiah 9. I'd like you to look at this with me. There's this opening few verses. It says, on the 24th day, now this is after they've partied and, and observed some festivals. On the 24th day of the same month, the people of Israel gathered... 
Now they've been partying. They've been eating sweets and drinks and stuff. They gathered to fast in order to show sorrow for their sins. They had already separated themselves from all foreigners. They wore sackcloth and put dust on their heads as signs of grief. And I'm thinking, if they're putting earth, dust, ashes, whatever, they're putting this on their heads, um, and some of them clearly must have been crying. This was a powerful experience. They probably, you know, they probably got mud in their eyes. Is, is that a good thing to get mud in your eyes? Um, maybe we'll come back to that, but I want you to, have you ever had mud in your eyes? For them, I'll bet this was part of the powerful experience they were going through. I want to look at this a little more closely. Nehemiah 9. They had already separated themselves from all foreigners. They're going into a time of confession here. In a place like Colorado Springs and in the Bible Belt, um, the culture wars are raging in some ways more uh, toxically than I can remember uh, since probably as a student of history around the turn of the century, back around the 1890s when the muckrakers and up into about 19, well, World War I pulled everybody back together again for a cause. It was really, a, it, was, it was a lot of mudslinging. It was a rough time in this country with, with two sides going at each other's throats. That's probably the last time it's been as bad as what it is right now. And I don't know where you stand on the culture wars in terms of trying to turn around the stuff that God hates in our community, which he does. Your list is probably similar to mine. You probably have some that I don't and I have some that you don't. But we've got our lists as, as people who want to see the kingdom of God in our community and we see things that don't belong in the kingdom of God and that bugs us and we want it out. That's, that's healthy and that's good. But there's a place for pulling ourselves out of our community and saying, now what this little conversation is about is not about the sins of the pagans and all these people we don't like what they're doing. We're not confessing their sins and blaming them and making... What this is happening here in Nehemiah, at this point, he's saying... Put the foreigners aside. You come in. You are my people. You're confessing your sins and your failures, not the failure of the culture out there. Same thing happened with the early church, with the, with the Roman Empire. They tried to change the communities that they were engaged in, but there was a place where they pulled out and said, but our community, we may not be able to change Rome or Corinth, but we can change our community when we gather together. We can make it like the kingdom of God when we submit ourselves and get in touch with God's vision and we live it amongst ourselves. And then when we fail, that's what we confess in a special way. Again, I know that there's you know, passages in Scripture that say you want to work for the good of the nation and you want to confess the sins of the nation. But again, there are times when it's about Christians, God's people, saying this conversation between ourselves and God is about what we have failed to do. What we knew we should have done and we didn't do. And I, I, you know, again, you can come up with your list of 313 uh, laws of the Torah, whatever you want to do, the Mishnah. I, 
I would suggest we could keep it real simple by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Can we confess ways we have failed on that? And when we start doing that and living into that reality, we're living into this passage in Nehemiah 9. Again, this is not the way we live our whole life. We are not like, you know, the desert fathers who wore horse hair and all this kind of stuff or barbed wire under their shirts and tried to, per, uh, you know, strap, slap themselves with, with whips and stuff. We're not trying to live a life that's tortured, always full of shame and guilt, but there is a time for confession. There, in, a, in a rounded Christian spiritual life, we do build into the rhythms, celebration, worship up, outward ministry, confession personally, and even occasionally corporate confession. And that's what this passage model, models for us. And if it wasn't in here, uh, I wouldn't be preaching it this morning. This is what I was assigned to. Not exactly the funnest thing, but it's here, and God is saying this morning, Dave, share this. This is my word. This is my heart. This is my history with my chosen people. And so it's part of what we need to understand wrestle with and incorporate into our understanding of who we are and who God is. So again, back to Nehemiah 9. They had gathered to fast in order to show sorrow for their sins. We're not required by law to fast, but it is something we can do individually and it's something occasionally we can do corporately if it helps if it helps us do what we need to do, which is sometimes as a community, step down and be humble and receive the truth of how we have failed. They had already separated themselves from all foreigners. Again, this is not about blaming somebody on the other side of Colorado Springs. This is about who we are as a community, as a life group, as a, as a kingdom group as a family under one roof. They wore sackcloth and put dust on their heads as signs of grief. I was thinking about this, the signs of grief and dressing up. Uh, for us, that's really kind of bizarre. I mean, we, like if there's a funeral or a wedding, we might all put on a better set of clothes for that event here in Colorado. Dress code cash. I see people in shorts at funerals and weddings in sneakers. I'm, I'm preaching in sneakers this morning. Where I came from, that would have been verboten. But, well, there's some Dutch people in here. I'd say, okay, that was the word in Dutch. Forbidden. Um, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, the one thing that maybe might help us get a handle on this is Halloween, of all things. I mean, isn't there something powerful on that day Unless you boycott it, which is okay, I understand that. Um, but, but we get a sense of all of the community, you know, even when you walk into the IHOP and somebody's wearing, you know, a funky hat or whatever. Somebody's walking around with balloons and an invisible dog playing a mime or whatever. Halloween is a time when the whole community is kind of like on the same page or most of the people are on the same page saying this is a day we, we, we all kind of act weird and live out little fantasies and have some fun with it. Imagine this day 
when the whole community, instead of just having some fun, pretend to make, everybody said, we're going to throw ashes on our heads. And we're going to wear a sackcloth, you know, real coarse, simple, burlap sack kinds of things. And you looked around and everybody else was doing it too. Now, it could be cheesy. It could be superficial and trite. But the deal was, was that all or at least most of the community was feeling it. They were feeling it. They had all got, God, God had done an amazing thing, getting his entire remnant back into Jerusalem that was going to rebuild, and getting them all on the same page by observing some festivals and gathering together for some reading and some worship. They were on the same page, and so when the decision was made, we are going to together put on our worst, most uncomfortable clothes, and we're going to put ashes on our head. Uh, we do this, some of us at least, we do it on like Ash Wednesday, but it's not the same thing. It's kind of individual, it's kind of like the right idea maybe once in a while to do something like that once a year minimum. I, I think there's something healthy about that. This was like though, like Halloween. I mean, it was everybody and it was dramatic and they were all going, we're feeling it, we're doing it because God is alive and amongst us and we're starting to catch up that we need to somehow show each other and God and, and, and ourselves that we are really locked in on this. Um, I, I, Natalie also said something real interesting around the, the prayer time um, about how Jesus prayed and he took time to pray and how important it is to take time to pray. And, um, you know, a lot of us live lives of tweets. Even in our relationship with our, our, our most close family and friends and even with God, it's like little bites. And we consider you know, reading two verses from our iPhone, which is not bad. I, I, I do that sometimes. It's just like the Bible app, you know, I get my verse for the day and give it, you know, 30 seconds or two minutes, whatever. But it's a tweet. You don't build a really deep relationship on tweets. You build it on time. You go into a relationship. You can't rush love if you ever see anybody try to rush love, it blows up. It becomes something twisted and wrong. Love takes time. It takes investment. It takes conversation. It takes silence together. You want to you wanna be well with your soul. You want to be good with God. You want to know the presence of God, know who God is. It's going to take some time. He gets it when you rush. He understands how busy our lives are. So it's a relative thing. Uh, some of us are in life stages, retirement or whatever, where we can hang out with God for an entire morning. We can go take a walk or whatever. Others of us have little kids in tow or grandkids in tow that day. There are times when, relatively speaking, giving God 15 minutes is as valuable as someone else giving them three days in the wilderness. I know it's relative, but are you really making it a priority so that you are giving God time. Look what happens here. They wore sackcloth, put dust on their heads, probably cried and got some of it in their eyes as signs of their grief. This was heartfelt communal grief. The whole community saying, we're feeling it. They stood and began to confess the sins that they and their ancestors had committed. 
for about three hours. The law of the Lord their God was read to them. And for the next three hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. Three hours. That's not a tweet. And when you're doing it on your feet, uh, that's not sweet. There was some pain in this. There was some discomfort. There was awkwardness. There were kids that had to kind of be, you know, hushed and taken aside. But this was a big deal, and they were saying, we mean it. Do they do this, you know, every day for six months? Do they do this the rest of their lives all the time? Of course not, but there's a time for it. And, you know, maybe seasonally, I don't know what this means to you. You're going to have to wrestle with the Holy Spirit, and Springs Church might want to wrestle with you know, whether there's application corporately for confession in some special way other than the liturgical prayer, which is not bad, but it's not as deep as this. I mean, many of us have, in my tradition, I grew up, again, in Western Michigan, RCA, we had a prayer of confession every Sunday. And it just was scratched the surface. In fact, sometimes it was a good time to, you know, close your eyes and imagine something you're going to do later on in the day or whatever. But if you can get a group of people. It doesn't have to be the entire church. If you, if you can enact this and see how powerful that might be. Um, so we've got a homeless guy living with us right now. He's amazing. And, and he's a, a recovering meth addict. And we, the first time we let him come, he, we had him sleeping in our shed because this wasn't right yet. And he relapsed and went back on the meth. And it wasn't until a few months ago when he got baptized, that the game change began. And he came out of the tank jumping up and down. I mean, literally, he was just so excited. He was full of the Holy Spirit. It was amazing. The people had gathered around him. This was one of those, like, someone's life was like this, and they've been baptized, and they've been wrapped in the Christian community, and now they're like this, and he's living in our home now. And literally last night, he, by the way, he's an amazing drummer, and he is now drumming for our Saturday night worship. And we've gone to the next level. He, you know, he gets, he gets anointed with the drumming and with everything else that's going on. He's just a joy. And he, he is now participating in the prayers. And he's learning how to pray. And literally last night, after the Saturday night worship, Audrey and I were sitting out uh, on the, uh, the patio and under the uh, little canopy thing in our cushion chairs. And... And, and Rich came in and sat down with us, and we had a beautiful conversation, a long conversation. And about in the middle of it, he wanted to talk to me about prayer. It's like, okay, so he's starting to pray corporately, because that's one of the things we do at our, our community centers, is we do corporate prayer, and everybody gets to participate. And he's observing how different people pray, and we had an honest conversation about how some people, they just have a few platitudes. You know, they roll out the trite cliche or whatever else, but it counts. I mean, if you're trying to talk with God, it's not a bad prayer. It may not be a great prayer, but it's, it's, it's conversation and it's time. It, it counts for something. And, and other people, half of what they're doing during prayer, sometimes at least, is, is preaching. Like they've got an agenda and they work it into the prayer to try and convince everybody who might be listening that uh, this is what they should be thinking or how they should be doing. We talked about all the, just the down-to-earth things that go on in prayer. And then near the end, I said, but if you want to learn some about prayer, 
Come with me uh, two weeks on Friday because we do a monthly prayer vigil like at 10 o'clock at night till 1130. I says, come and hang with some people who spend hours in prayer every week. And some of them like even have kids and stuff. Some of them are pretty busy. But you can feel the difference. And again, all of us, there's a mix in how we pray. There's some world, the flesh, and the devil gets in there. Um, But people who spend a lot of time in prayer, they hear the Spirit and they channel the Spirit's will and heart into the prayer and into the community. And you get traction. Like just this morning up in the attic, there were several prayers that were prayed that don't come from somebody who who doesn't pray very often. You've got to pray a while to learn how. And these people are putting some time in, not tweeting. By the way, it's like almost on the hour. What, how, how far do I go? When do I, when do I stop? When? Ten after? I got 15 more minutes? Right on. All right. What, does somebody just pull the rug out? And there's, okay. Um, so here we see an example in Nehemiah 9 of some pretty dramatic things that are going on. And they felt that this was really important. God put it on their heart, convicted them. It can be hard for us to give it that kind of time and energy and importance. Again, relatively speaking, we're not asking for exactly this to be replicated. That's, that's empty, you know, um, almost mocking, copying, uh, whatever. We gotta be led by the Spirit how we do this. But I wanna jump back to, um, it was just about New Year's. It was like December 29, 1972, flight 401 from New York to Miami. 101 people died in that plane crash. And some of us remember that. It was followed up by a number of news stories. All the details came out. There was a National Geographic aired a special on this called Fatal Distraction. That was the title of this special, Fatal Distraction. Here's what happened. This is a modern-day true parable of of, of what can happen when we get distracted by the wrong things. This was a relatively new airplane. Uh, The pilots and the co-pilots were getting used to it. Um, They weren't totally comfortable with how the systems worked. And as they were approaching Miami, a a little green light started flashing. And it was an indicator that there was a malfunction in the landing gear. The problem is, is that the crew wasn't sure whether it was the light that was malfunctioning or the landing gear that was malfunctioning. And they all started scrambling, trying to determine whether the light was wrong or the landing gear wasn't going down. And they had put themselves into a circling pattern over the Everglades while they were trying to figure this out. Well, those of you who remember, the plane crashed in the Everglades while people were off trying to figure out about the green light. They had thought they had engaged autopilot, but they didn't. And the plane slowly circled down and nobody realized. And it wasn't like, it was a slow circle down and then a crash because the altitude thing had not been engaged on the autopilot. 101 people, everybody got hurt. 101 people died 
because they were looking at the blinking light and nobody was paying attention to the really big picture of what was going on. In our lives, there's so often we're like pulled off. At, there's a light there. There's something, and it's, it's true. It's, it's an issue. And we take our eye, though, off the window, off the big picture, off the direction of our lives, and we can get sucked into any little thing, like, you know, what's going on locally, politically. I, I, I just... So I, I, maybe the last time I was here, I might have asked for prayer about this. I mean, we're doing homeless ministry on South Broadway, and we've had a lot of pushback from certain elements of the community. A lot of people have come forward to support us. It's been very good and healthy in bringing partnerships together and more uh, volunteers bringing in food and having feedings and stuff. But there's also two people on city council who are trying to get us closed down. And, and one of them is full of lies and, 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 and false witness. It's just horrible. I mean, it's, it's demonic. The Bible says, do not bear false witness. And when you stand up there and lie and say the things that are being said against us and the slanders and the accusations, it's just horrific. And we're in the middle of a spiritual, political battle. And I start going to city council meetings and standing up and saying, here's the last six things that this council person said last week. Point by point, I refute them and say, this is why this is wrong. This is why this is blatantly the opposite of the fact. And I start looking at the blinking light of a particular council person and a few people in her corner who don't like us and don't like the homeless. They, their answer is arrest them, put them in jail, and then they'll be gone. But the deal is it's not, that's not cost effective, if nothing else, not to mention you know, de dehumanizing. It's, it, I mean, it's horrible, but... It's not, it's not even a possible solution. So you got to work on other solutions, and they're not bringing any other solutions other than put them in jail. So that, it's just absurd. And I get myself all worked up, and I'm looking at this blinking light, and I'm down there, and then the next week, I get called profanities in social media because I was beating up on this council person. And it, I mean, it's just like so bizarre. And I get so discouraged, I don't even want to do ministry anymore. And it's like the blinking light has pulled me off the very thing that God has called me to do for my community. And it took a few people, including my wife, saying, stop reading the social media. Stop going to, to the city council meetings. Pray harder. And, you know, you've got other people who can do some of this for you. But you've got to get your eye back on to, does God want this done? Yes. Did he call you for this season to do your part in this? Yes. So what's the debate? Do what you're supposed to do. Get your eye back on. Now back to Nehemiah. They got, they, 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 they got their eye off any blinking lights and they put it on the big picture and said, here's what we need to do to turn our community around. We need to confess. We need to take seriously. Confess is to agree with God. You confess your sin, you agree with what he believes and on his heart and what he said about what you're doing. A true confession is, God, you're right. The world says it's okay. My mom said it was okay. My best friend said it was okay. But you said it was wrong. And I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to confess. I have been doing something that's wrong. Confession is step one. Step two is repentance. Repentance is, I agree it's wrong, and now I'm going to turn around and change my behavior. They're both very important. You've got to do both. 
you can't repent unless you've got clarity on the confession. The confession comes through looking at the law, looking at the Lord, looking at Jesus Christ and his life. You start to see where you're out of line. And you say, I agree, I'm out of line. Repentance is, now I'm going to change and try and get in line and work on getting in line. Now, of course, none of us can do this perfectly. Only Jesus Christ. And in fact, he did so much that we're forgiven for not getting it right. Our salvation isn't dependent on getting it right. Thank you, Jesus, for your work and that I'm covered through your sins, but I'm going to do my part. I want to wrap this up by bringing us back to mud in your eye. A few of you might have thought when I said mud in your eye that maybe it goes back to John 9. Jesus healed a lot of people a lot of different ways. But in John 9, he sees this blind man. He takes some earth, some dust, and spits on it, and he makes mud, and he puts it on the man's eye. This is an amazing story of healing because it takes the entire chapter of John 9 to hear the whole story of how this plays out. This guy, like at first of all, you know, they, they, it was on the Sabbath, so they drag him in and um, say, what happened? And he's trying to say, well, I don't know, but this guy did the miracle. By the end, the guy's saying, he's, this is Jesus, the son of, of God, and he starts worshiping Jesus. There's this transition Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the keepers of the law refused to have their eyes open. The humility of receiving the mud on his eyes, the humility of saying, Jesus, have your way with me, even though it's messy, mud in my eyes, allowed this man to become a follower of Jesus and enter into the kingdom of God. Those who refuse to be humble and see it and receive what seemed dirty and messy, were, were outside and stayed outside the kingdom of God. So I leave you with the metaphor, mud in your eyes. Think of the dust, the tears, the time for laughter, the time for confession and sorrow and grief. Think of the man who receives the mud and is given sight. Think of a complete life that involves many aspects, including times, to let yourself grieve the sins of your own life, of your family and friends, and of the Christian community. And in that, you will receive a word from Nehemiah 9 of what God has done with his people in history. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this community that is just pressing, I just see it in so many ways, pressing into a fullness of up, in, and out, of, of a balance in their life as a community, as individuals. I pray that whatever you wanted to say to anyone this morning through Nehemiah 9, that they would receive it, that it, that, that seed would put down roots and send up shoots and bear fruits, and they would be blessed knowing more about how to be strong in the Lord and balanced in the kingdom. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who has all authority on heaven and earth. May it be so. Amen.